Hello again, and a warm welcome to this special series of the Hive podcast, featuring the interviews from my new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the ideas transforming the world of business, brands, and beyond. For more information and resources on today's episode, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And for more information around the book, please visit businessunusualthebook.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nell Watson, a tech ethicist, machine intelligence researcher, and AI faculty member at Singularity University. A longtime friend of the podcast, Nell's interdisciplinary research into emerging technologies such as machine vision and AI ethics have attracted audiences from all over the world and inspired leaders to work towards a brighter future at venues such as the World Bank, the United Nations General Assembly, and the Royal Society. A senior advisor to the Future Society at Harvard, Nell also serves as an advisory technologist to several accelerators, venture capital funds, and startups including the Lifeboat Foundation, which aims to protect humanity from existential risks that could end civilization as we know it, such as asteroid collisions or rogue artificial intelligence. She also chairs ethicsnet.org, a community teaching prosocial behaviors to machines, culturalpeace.org, crafting Geneva Convention-style rules for cultural conflict, edcsymbol.org, informing consumers of endocrine disruptors, and Patcher.org, connecting a network of service providers to help enable the automated accounting of externalities or shifted costs such as pollution. Nell serves as Senior Scientific Advisor to the Future Society, Senior Fellow to the Atlantic Council, and holds fellowships from the British Computing Society and the Royal Statistical Society, among others. Nell, thank you so much for joining me in conversation on The Hive again. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate. I just thought if we're talking about technology and the future of humanity, you were the top on my list to be in conversation with. So I'd like to start with a conversation starter that I invite my guests to participate in. At this point in human history, what do you feel is happening in the global human psyche, if we can use that frame? Phew. Mm. Well, there's a lot going on, for sure. Let's see. We're seeing a lot of increasing polarization in many different nations around the world, particularly kind of political or sectarian polarization. And I think a lot of that is somewhat to do with algorithms, somewhat to do with social media driving that process. Um, there are some issues with echo chambers. There are some issues with it being all too easy to to stir up conflict or to get dragged into conflict, which is stirred up by a small percentage of people. We're living in a time now where it's also all too easy to figure out where somebody might lie on a political spectrum. I mean, it used to be that if you kept your mouth shut, um, <laughs> as long as you weren't distributing pamphlets or something, you know, nobody could really figure out where you stood on some political issue. You know, they could figure out your, your sex or your ethnicity or your pregnancy status or something like that, perhaps at a glance, but not politics, right? Mm. Even your religion, they might infer, if you're wearing a cross or a kippah or something like that or observe certain holidays. But politics was, was something private. And now that's not necessarily the case. Now an employer can monitor an employee's browsing of a website on their lunch break. And whether they happen to look at Breitbart or Jacobin, you know, that kind of thing can give you an insight into where they, where they lie on that spectrum. And in, the, in these times there are increasingly both internal and external pressures and activism 
to deny certain people access to certain employment opportunities mm. or even housing opportunities or potentially public services. I mean, we're really at the start of this, but I grew up in Northern Ireland myself and I've seen where this can go and how far this can go. You know, Northern Ireland experienced decades of civic strife and cold civil war. And it only really began to end in the late 90s mm. when we had an agreement that everybody pretty much across all communities um, ratified to contain conflict, to create a sort of a Geneva Conventions for the sectarian wars, I suppose you could say. Mm -hmm. And we set a limit on conflict. We said, yes, you can have a disagreement, a bitter one perhaps, but it has to be a war of words. Mm. You know, discriminating as to whether somebody can get and gain employment or gain access to housing, etc., or access to public services is off limits, right? You know, the conflict cannot spread that far. And along with some other reforms to, for example, some of the policing institutions uh, within society to ensure greater inclusion uh, and greater uh, representation, once those rules were implemented, 80% of the conflict disappeared almost overnight. Extraordinary. Yeah, and the children today growing up have a very different experience than, than I did myself as a kid. And that gives me a lot of hope, actually, because despite a lot of the, the cultural schism going on, the cultural conflicts, the ongoing demoralization of many societies, which I believe has become a new theater of war, mm. and there is a shadow cold war going on mm -hmm. with many different entities attempting to demoralize many different other cultures or possibly to target individuals for a particular demoralization. But I think the example of Northern Ireland shows that when we implement decent rules above conflict and hold all parties within that conflict to adhere to those rules, then a lot of the, the bitterness and, and egregiousness of that conflict can actually disappear. Mm. And so I came up with some suggestions at a little website called culturalpeace.org, where I've got a series of principles there, which I believe would make reasonable rules, which may be more or less agreed by many different groups within society and across societies for containing conflict, you know, for setting limits on how far that kind of cultural conflict can spread. And it's, it's an open process. So I have a whole bunch of editable documents that people can go in and suggest, you know, this needs to be in there or, you know, this shouldn't be in there, etc. And the goal then is to, is to attempt to establish this as, as a crib sheet for anyone wanting to create legislation that might reduce polarization within society. Mm. And I think that one important aspect will be the necessary introduction of political creed or, or belief or orientation as a protected class within employment and possibly other areas of society as well. I think... Once that came in in Northern Ireland, things improved a lot. And I think that things are going to get a little bit worse mm. until we take similar steps to, to protect people from that kind of exclusion based upon their perceived political affiliation. Mm. So I think with that element included, um, I think we can begin to steer humanity out of pointless uh, anger, out of pointless scapegoating, and hopefully bring a faith in society and its institutions and democratic principles back in 
for kind of a, a, a future that's, that's overall happier. But there's another element that needs to be there as well, if I can segue into that. And that is finding ways to curb inequality. Because one of the reasons why we've seen this great proliferation of polarization and identity politics is because for a lot of people, they're not experiencing a materially better world mm. in real terms than, say, 20 years ago. A lot of people with tremendous power and wealth have further consolidated that ability to uh, have greater control and influence over society. And they've done that through technology. And we've seen that even during the, the pandemic, where the richest got richer by a massive degree, and that gulf between rich and poor ever expanded. And until that problem begins to be addressed fully, I think people's identities uh, will be ever more in their mind uh, as a way of trying to protect their own interests, which is probably pyrrhic and probably futile and not going to uh, lead to necessarily any better conditions for them, but it's, it's something that they feel is their only escape button, right? Mm -hmm. Revolutions are people's way of slamming the brakes, right? We think of revolutions as being about change, but it's really, it's about the opposite. It's about people really don't like where things are heading and they want to arrest that process. And I think there's a great deal of people in our world today who increasingly feel suspicious about where the future is taking them. And there's been a tremendous loss of faith Mm. that the future will be a better place than the past. And that needs to change, really, if we're to solve the, the ongoing conflicts. Mm. It's so interesting hearing you speak about these different layers of what we're facing. And the piece in particular that struck me was your use of the word demoralisation, mm. to demoralise people. Because if you can move people into that state of apathy and you can make them fight for what they have, which is their identity, mm. then suddenly it becomes much easier for people to be kind of inactivated. They don't feel they have agency. They can't affect any real change. And then the war is already won. And actually, to that point, if we're talking about the concerns that people have about the future, one of the things that I'm very interested in, which you know a lot more about than I do, is about the ways in which the pandemic and the lockdowns in particular have catalyzed the adoption of certain technologies. So I'm thinking in particular, I was reading today actually about surveillance technologies that are then harder to roll back once they've been propagated. So there was um, an example, which is a contentious example, about facial recognition tech that claims to track emotional expressions through webcams in real time. Mm. And an example was this AI-powered learning platform called Four Little Trees, which is designed by the Hong Kong-based startup Find Solution AI. And it was rolled out to monitor, ostensibly, students' emotions as they study at home. Now, obviously, there's a lot of psychologists who are talking about the issues of reliability and validity and whether it actually measures what it purports to. But obviously, there's also another question, which is what questions should we be asking ourselves and who gets to make the choice and consent to whether this gets rolled out before we actually roll this tech out? What are your thoughts about that general concept of what technologies we choose to roll out? how we do it, who has consent? I know that's a very big <laughs> open question to throw to you. It's a, it's a huge question. And to a strong extent, it also may reinforce inequality further mm. because traditionally blue-collar jobs were jobs of manual labour and white-collar jobs were jobs of mental labour, give or take. But I think we're coming to a world where that is redefined. And blue-collar positions are those roles which are principally governed by machines or principally governed or managed by algorithms. And white-collar ones are roles that have more autonomy, right? Around about 100 years ago, there was this concept of Taylorism, 
time and motion, the idea of using scientific management to squeeze more productivity out of the workforce. And it turned out to be a bit of a disaster. I mean, it looked good on paper because they implemented some idea and productivity went up. But of course, it was really just the observer effect. People knew that they were being watched for the experiment and so mm. they, they tried harder and it wasn't sustainable. And I think that many of the, the most algorithmically driven companies, for example, Amazon or Uber, are increasingly finding algorithmic means to manage their workforces, right? It might be things which are relatively benign, such as ensuring that people have the right personal protective equipment on and using machine vision algorithms to ascertain that before somebody can, um, can clock on. But increasingly, things like bathroom breaks are being monitored. Mm. And I have a deep concern that we, we think of tyranny as being some horrible despo that controls everything. But often tyranny is found not in people, but in systems, mm. right? And people can rebel against a person that they can personify and say, you know, I don't like this guy and I don't want to live under that person's yoke. But systems are harder to rail against because there's no avatar of a system typically, necessarily, that one can point to. And my fear is that we will be increasingly bullied around by algorithmic busybodies who work to asinine metrics and kind of frog march us into do doing different things to such an extent that, that we end up exhausted and physically and mentally burned out. Mm. And I think a lot of people in those neo-blue-collar positions will, will experience that kind of phenomenon for themselves. And I think it's very important that we find ways to improve people's autonomy, mm. uh, to respect the dignity of the person, and not to implement algorithmic solutions for line management unless they're very strictly necessary. And I think this is going to be an increasingly larger area of discussion when it comes to labor, labor disputes and unions and, all, and that kind of thing. So when it comes to what qualities... And this is an interesting one with you because you talk a lot about ethics. And I know in some of our previous conversations, we've explored this fascinating question that you raise of creating systems or teaching AI to act more ethically than we are able to act as humans. So the question, you can take this in any direction you wish, but are there human qualities that you feel cannot be replaced by machines where people think about their professional lives and about being resilient by upskilling or whatever it is that they need to so that they don't get replaced through automation. On the one hand, are there human qualities that we need to be cherishing and focusing on? And on the other hand, are there certain qualities that machines can bring that we could draw from if we're thinking about creating society which is, as you say, more just and more equitable, which I know a lot of people are very concerned about? Yes. I mean, there are plenty of opportunities that we can improve people's daily working lives. We can enable machines to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. If we think of great inventors and artists like Leonardo da Vinci, they typically had a small army of apprentices and assistants helping them to implement things, mm. whilst they had you know, the grand ideas that if they didn't have that support, they probably could not manifest. It would remain scrawled on some codex somewhere and not breathed into existence. So machines can help us with that. They can make some suggestions. They can help to improve and uh, optimize ideas or optimize processes. And yeah, they can help us to, to realize our visions in 
interesting ways we perhaps hadn't considered. Mm. And doing the heavy lifting of some of the more boring tasks is probably, all things considered, going to be positive and beneficial. And I think working in tandem with machine intelligence is going to be a key skill in the 2020s and beyond. The same way that people had to learn how to type mm. in the 80s through 90s. They had to learn the Microsoft Office suite <laughs> and they had to learn about desktop publishing mm. and you know those, those sorts of basic office skills that all of us take for granted these days that everyone must have. People had to learn those. You know, it used to be that the bosses didn't type. They didn't know how to type, you know. And in fact, it was, it was a difficult sell um, to, to persuade a manager to use a computer mm. because it had a typewriter-like keyboard on it and they considered that in for dig, right? Mm -hmm. And so that cultural change had to shift before people started using these machines and productivity increased greatly through them although commensurate wages probably did not. And I think there's going to be a similar learning curve where most people will learn how to work in tandem with machine intelligence, and some people won't. Mm. And just the same way that some people missed the computerization wave and ended up kind of locked out of career advancement, I think a similar similar thing might happen uh, in the 2020s if we don't encourage people at an early stage to um, to become more familiar with working in concert with AI and to understand the benefits of why they should do so. So part of that adaptation, I think, is also being able to respond to and pick up other interfaces as they emerge. And one of the things I want to ask you about is what you think about the new wave of optimism around VR and how it could transform the way in which you communicate. So one of the points that you mentioned earlier was about the movement of people before we jumped onto the recording part <laughs> of the talk. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts and hopes about what VR could do to help us better connect with and relate to one another in the future? Yes. VR has a bit of a problem in that it needs to be experienced to be truly understood. It's something that's a bit difficult to, to describe why it's important or why it's transformative. Yeah. And so I recommend if one hasn't had a good experience of recent VR, um, not just the, the, the janky stuff of the 90s, <laughs> but what's really possible today. You know, there's, there's malls all over the place that have... Um, VR gaming sessions, you know, set up. And I recommend everybody go and spend half an hour and have a go at it and, and see how nauseated they feel. It's probably less than they might expect. But immersive experiences like games, particularly virtual reality games, can provide so many opportunities for increased empathy. To give an example, um, there's a game called Mafia 3, um, which I really enjoyed. And, and it's set in Louisiana in 1968. And so there's still this kind of Jim Crow kind of culture going on. And, and the protagonist is, is a black man. <laughs> and actually wandering around as this, you know, black man avatar in that situation and, and sort of experiencing uh, some of the, the treatment or, or just casual insults and things from people actually gave me a much stronger uh, emotional empathy, mm. not just cognitive, because of course we understand that, that those times were very difficult for, for many people. Um, but the emotional sense, having that hurled my avatar and experiencing that, I found that a very moving experience. Mm. It gave me a lot of emotional empathy for um, for how people must have felt in that situation and why there was so much anger um, at that time in history. And I think that's that's a nice example. Uh, another is is the work of Noni de la Pena, uh, a researcher who creates examples of uh, war situations and refugee camp situations that people can explore in VR. And, and get a very uh, 
strongly vicarious experience of what it is like to be in those situations, you know? And I think that's a great way for, for teaching people more about the experiences of others in a, in a way which is much more direct. And sidesteps our, our cognitive processes and gets right to the emotional core of how something feels, mm-hmm. right? Not just the, 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 the word cloud associated with something. But I think VR can take us in mixed realities as well. I happen to be a judge on the ANA Avatar X Prize, and that's a, a competition for the best avatar robot systems. So an avatar is you know, basically like, like a robot that you can directly control and that, that it will mirror your own movements, right? And in these times of social distance, that kind of technology is ever more important. But it provides new opportunities, for example, for somebody to use their skills from them being physically in one place, but um, doing, say, medical work in Mm. another place. Mm. Or... Um, an engineer might inhabit a robot in a remote location up in oh. Alaska <laughs> to to fix an airplane or something like that without physically needing to go there. And these technologies are advancing at an incredible rate. I'm continually blown away by just how sophisticated and how relatively affordable we're talking, you know, $5,000 or wow. so, um, many of these systems are. And this will have geopolitical ramifications, I believe. Because at the moment, so many people in the world are convinced that for them to do well in life, that they need to leave where they are and go somewhere else. Mm. And I think a lot of that is because people don't have hope. They don't have hope that, that they can um, have a better life if they don't do that. But through this new wave of avatar technologies, which will arise in the 2020s, people will have the ultimate way of, of telecommuting from any corner of the planet, especially because of satellite networks like Starlink, which have very high bandwidth, very low latency connections, mm-hmm. right? And that's, of course, very important if you're operating a, a, a robotic avatar some other part of the planet. So that kind of latency you want you want to have have as low as possible mm. and as high bandwidth as possible, so you have a high fidelity experience both ways. So I believe that's going to give people hope to do meaningful work in other parts of the world and bring that hard currency back to their own community to enrich them and their families without needing to say goodbye to those families and friends and leave them far behind. Um, to go into a very uh, uncertain journey. And actually, this embodiment of a a, a mashing up of humans and machines is also going to improve machine intelligence because all of the sensors, etc., all of that information can be recorded and you can use that then to train actual machine-driven robots instead. Simple things like mm-hmm. how to sit down, how to greet somebody, how to shake somebody's hand, right? Just the same way that self-driving vehicles recorded millions of hours of human driving in order to learn from those experiences, uh, robots will learn from human-piloted avatars. It's almost like we're ensouling the machine. Yes, we're, we're, we're giving it a, a, an embodiment, yes. And... And that embodiment will give it a proper social presence, right? And will further integrate these technologies in our lives. So the 2020s is going to be the wave of avatars and the 2030s is going to be the wave of properly sophisticated domestic um, and workplace robots. And the first wave is going to lead the second. But before that embodiment of robots, we are already going to be very strongly working in concert with machines, with machine intelligence for um, 
for our personal and professional lives. And I think we're about to have a Sputnik moment in AI. And it's going to come around once people realize that instead of talking to their AI assistant in their kitchens or in their pockets and asking about what tomorrow's weather is going to be, once that AI assistant is able to ask how their day was and meaningfully comment on it or crack a joke about some situation that they have experienced today, that's going to be a moment where there is a moral panic about AI and its capabilities. Mm -hmm. And that's coming very soon because of technologies like GPT-3, um, which has let the cat out of the bag. Uh, the secret is out. Um, just as in 2010, the secret came out about deep learning. And the secret was, in that case, have really deep neural networks and throw lots of data at them and you get uh, unreasonably good results. And now the secret is out again, have really massive colossal models where you invest millions in developing them, but the, the results are again disproportionately effective. Mm. And that means there is currently an arms race amongst many different organizations around the world. Big tech, intelligence agencies, militaries, all of them are dumping huge amounts of resources into these massive models. And they have to, because not doing so would create an existential threat. You know, the, the GPT-3 algorithm can function as a very powerful search engine, one not based on keywords, but able to pick up subtle nuances, right? So if you ask about um, a joke about a duck, it doesn't have to look up keywords about, you know, this is a humor website <laughs> and we're talking about, about you know, waterfowl. Yeah the new algorithms might be sophisticated enough to uh, to tell you a limerick about, about an ostrich instead, something that the keywords wouldn't have brought up for you. But that means that if you're a large search engine company with millions of dollars of R&D budget, or possibly hundreds of millions, you need to be investing because otherwise somebody might come and disrupt you and take away your whole business model within three years. So... An arms race is afoot, and it means that AI technologies are going to come hot and heavy. And within about a year or so, we will start to see that kind of uh, conversation-style experience with your AI assistant. And that's when people are going to really start freaking out about AI. I I'm already freaking out about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're one of the most inspiring speakers about it, because you look at the ways in which it can really aid us and help us. But I know that there are a lot of actors who don't necessarily want the best for people. They don't want to help uh, individuals and communities self-actualize and create hubs of hope or what have you. But uh, I'm also conscious that I want to take this in a different direction, in a different project that you work with. And it connects with one of the themes that's present in my book, in the research for the book, which is what appears to be now becoming a transgenerational shift around concerns for sustainability, social justice, mm. how we design our systems, which of course machine learning and AI will have a lot of impact upon. So I'd love to ask you a bit more about your work with Pacha.org, um, what it is and how it hopes to transform the ways in which businesses and economies operate, because it's quite an exciting, revolutionary idea. Thank you. Well, it's still somewhat conceptual, but I am hashing out some potential protocols for it and, and we'll see where it goes. But at the moment, it's, it's a it's a resource for figuring out what ventures are in this space. And it's really a question of how we begin to, to link them together. Mm -hmm. So an observation that I came across a while ago, in fact, I would almost call it an epiphany, was that one of the really greatest problems in our society is shifted costs. And that's where somebody does something and it affects somebody else, unrelated. Things like pollution, mm -hmm. right? You have a factory, and the factory is making goods, and that's profitable, but it's also perhaps generating pollution, and somebody else has to pay for that pollution. Mm -hmm. they, may, they pay in their health, they pay in 
the walls of their dwelling getting covered by soot and needing to repaint it every other year. Uh, those effects might even extend to agriculture, right? Might blot out the sun a bit and make local farms less, less productive mm -hmm. as well. And really, our world today, since the Industrial Revolution, since the advent of mass production in the First and Second World Wars, we've got really good at making things and making things which are often incredibly sophisticated. Uh, but we've got no better, really, at taking things away at the end of their working life. Mm. We still throw things in landfill. Yes, we might do a little bit of recycling now and then, which is great, but it's very hard to make a profit on that. And often th there have been scandals whereby uh, recycled goods mm. have ended up in landfill anyway, mm -hmm. simply because it wasn't economically uh, viable to, to, to genuinely recycle them. So there is an element missing from economics. That element is about understanding the shifted costs, which in economics terms might be described as an externality, right? A negative externality can sometimes be a positive externality. Like if a rich person invests in, uh, in a medical treatment and then, you know, that passes on to other people. But typically most of these externalities are negative. But we have the opportunity through machine learning, the internet of things, smart contracts and cryptography, and perhaps a, a layer of machine ethics as well, machines understanding how different decisions may impact different people. For the first time, we almost have the ability to do automated externality accounting the ability to track shifted costs in real time and to figure out who was affected by them, mm. to what degree, and to generate a path of redress, right? So that somebody is obligated to uh, make good on the costs that they have created. And if we can do that, then we can have a truly sustainable economy without needing to deconstruct our industrial base. We can just about have our cake and eat it too. And it feels to me as if all of the necessary elements are there. And many of the organizations that I list on pacha.org are doing fantastic work, but it's all a little bit siloed. Mm. It's as if we're at the internet in 1989, where everyone can tell that it's gonna be big, mm. But to do things on the net, you have to connect to a server and then upload a file or something like that. You can't surf. But then came the advent of the World Wide Web, and then you could surf between different servers just by typing in uh, a simple address, and that changed everything, mm. right? Mm. And that protocol and that interface is missing. But if we can create it, then we can link all of these resources together to create a kind of an internet of planet, a way of understanding what's going on in terms of the environment. And we can protect not only financial capital, but we can protect natural capital as well and social capital. And when we can do that, I think it's also going to feed into polarization, strangely enough because of course technology and culture often mm. uh, interweave with each other. But one of the reasons why people cling to their identities so much is because they may feel as if something is being taken away from them through some development or some new law. They have a perceived sense of loss, but often that is difficult to articulate. It is difficult to articulate how somebody may benefit from something whilst um, that, that private individual enjoyment may have some costs on wider society. Mm -hmm. 
For example, in, in China, they fine people uh, who are single mothers wow. because they, they perceive that single motherhood, all things being equal statistically, tends to lead to worse outcomes for children. Hmm. And that creates a shifted cost upon society of children who are more likely to be tearaways. And so they oblige people to, to pay for that choice or that decision. Now, I don't think that's necessarily correct or that's necessarily how things should be done. Mm. But it's an interesting perspective on things. Mm. And I think that, honestly, so many of our conflicts of, of not being able to understand each other, not being able to understand each other's perspectives, being bewildered by why somebody would think a certain thing, is because we're not talking in terms of shifted costs. We're talking in terms of good or evil or values and things. But if we can abstract it and say, yes, I appreciate that, you know, this may create a shifted cost, but let's counterbalance that with individual liberty. Mm -hmm. Or let's find a just way of, of balancing these things so that people can enjoy their individual liberties, but that excessive liberty at the expense of the societal commons or the social fabric should also be offset in some way. Mm. And I think if we can have that kind of conversation, then we can actually begin to resolve conflicts which seem completely intractable, I believe. Mm. So an example in terms of sustainability might be that if you choose to buy a really nice but gas-guzzling car, the shifted cost is placed upon not only the manufacturer, but the consumer who buys the car. So it becomes more expensive and eventually the non-gas guzzlers fall in price, become more attractive. And so the shifts occur in that way. Is that also part of the, the idea with this framework? Precisely, mm -hmm. precisely, yes. Because really it's, it's about fairness mm -hmm. uh, and, and about justice because the costs exist and somebody has to pay for them. And it's usually those who are most impoverished who have you know difficulty uh, escaping from those things mm -hmm. i mean there is tremendous amounts of lead embedded in streets and embedded in you know bushes and things adjacent to highways from tetraethyl lead which was of course the the additive put in in petroleum for decades right mm -hmm. We stopped doing that in the 80s and 90s. But that legacy continues and it's not really going away. It's, it's embedded in the environment. And that means that statistically, youth growing up in urban environments are more likely to have mental issues or they're more likely to have reduced IQ because of their environmental exposure to that. Mm. And it will take decades, maybe centuries, for that to truly go away, for those poisoned parts of the world to, uh, to become pure again. And if, if we were able to track those kinds of costs, then we could begin to, to make a live redress for them mm. um, before they build up to such a degree that they take years and years to fix. That sounds like a very exciting vision. And if there are business leaders listening, you need to get in on this. <laughs> <laughs> so if I asked you to envision what a resilient business might look like, what comes up for you? I think the pandemic period has been a wake-up call about systemic risk. Mm -hmm. We live in an increasingly interconnected world, and that's very efficient. But that interconnectivity comes with systemic risk, right? The system can break down or it can be disrupted in different ways. And often we, we tend to ignore tail risks. We tend to sort of say, well, you know, nobody can really predict that this might happen. So, you know, we'll just put it out of our minds. And then, of course, things happen, right? Things happen that, that we didn't expect, but that we could have expected, um, because statistically we knew they were going to happen eventually. Mm. And organizations that have an understanding of tail risk and systemic fragility are those who are, all things being equal, more likely to be resilient, right? They're going to have those contingencies in place that they can switch from one business model to another, 
or they can switch from one uh, channel to their consumers to a different channel. Or they can possibly even uh, use the one production facility to switch to a different product, one that is uh, more needed in that time and perhaps even something pretty crucial. You know, we've mm-hmm. seen plastics companies and paper companies uh, switch to making masks in a way that is not only profitable, but of course, uh, societally so important as well. And I think this is going to be a domain of study for a long time. Now that we've had this big whopper of an issue come up and we've noticed the domino effects of one small issue creating a larger issue and mm-hmm. then creating a firestorm of, of problems that quickly gets out of, out of control and has very long and tragic ramifications for many people around the world. So resiliency is about thinking about the future, taking reasonable steps to build contingencies in case the worst should happen. And that requires a lot of, a lot of modeling upfront and a lot of rapid prototyping of potential alternate law or alternate plans, mm-hmm. right? What if this happens? You know, what if there's a flood? What if there's another pandemic? Mm. Uh, what if there's a geomagnetic storm and we lose GPS for six months, right? Mm. You know, how, how might that affect our suppliers? How might that affect our deliveries, etc.? And so those kinds of war games are going to be very important for protecting companies in the future. And I would say increasingly important because we live in an increasingly interconnected world and a world of increasingly bizarre events. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, that's just go, that just goes hand in hand with, with things accelerating the way that they are. And so this is going to be top of mind um, for businesses well into the, our future. So thinking about the future then and about your wildest hope for what it could be, what kind of world might you like to see emerge from this crisis and onwards? I would like to see a world of new and reformed institutions. In the wake of the Second World War, where we had masses of people moving in the millions, where we had terrible starvation, where we had geopolitical squabbles over who got to carve up what bits of Europe, Mm. when we had the emergence of terrifying nuclear weapons and a new order whereby the US was beginning to eclipse uh, Europe and its colonies, as well as waves of decolonization around the world, particularly in the Asian sphere. The world was changing massively Mm. and we recognized that we just didn't have the institutions to deal with that, right? Mm. We'd had a go with things like the League of Nations, but it didn't really work out so well. And so we had to come up with things like the United Nations. We had to come up with things like NATO. We had to come up with things like the European Coal and Steel Community, which eventually evolved into the, the EC and the EU. And largely, that did make for a better world. It significantly contained the excess of conflict. There were a lot of stumbles along the way. There were a lot of failures, and there continue to be a lot of failures with these institutions. But it did lead largely to a better world. The second half of the 20th century was, Mm -hmm. in many places, significantly better than, than the first, with a few notable exceptions. And I think we're at a similar time now. We're recognizing that the world ahead is going to be very different from the world that has been. Mm -hmm. That our issues are becoming potentially existential threats to Mm -hmm. humanity, not just businesses or nations. And that we do need to build new institutions which can deal with that. Institutions which are more flexible, Mm. which are more participatory, which aren't based purely in Manhattan or Brussels, 
which are able to include more people, to be more participatory, and to flexibly deal with issues before they arise and not as they arise. And I think this is a great opportunity to do that because some cracks are starting to show in some of our institutions, those which have often genuinely preserved us over the last 70 years or so. And I think that now we have the momentum um, to do so, to overcome the inertia and ensure that we can refactor these institutions so that they do last through the 21st century. Because otherwise, they might not. We might give up on them. Mm. We might think that they're simply not adequate and fall back on nationalist ideas or mm. um, every man for himself, so to speak. And I think we can take some of the lessons from software engineering which has, in so many ways, eaten the world in recent years. But there's a concept of refactoring in the world of software. And it's where you have a system which is very complex and mm -hmm. does complicated things, and it works. But you get into technical debt, right? Because the system is so complicated that it's very difficult to upgrade it. It's very difficult to improve it. Because as soon as you fix something, something else tends to break, mm -hmm. right? And you get a chain reaction. It's like, it's like having a ladder in your tights. You know, one little thing breaks and yeah. then the, the rest of it comes apart. But we have an opportunity to refactor our institutions, to take that complex system that does a thing and make it still do the thing, but in a much simpler way. And we can apply things like AI to do that. Because now we have algorithms that can take very complex, dense, bureaucratic legalese and take that page and spit out a simple paragraph that almost anyone can understand, right? Mm. And if we can do that with our laws, we can do that with our tax regulations, if we can do that with all of the bureaucracy, which seems to just get stronger and stronger and simplify things, then I think we have a tremendous opportunity to make our institutions radically more efficient and able to be flexible enough to cope with our increasingly digitized and systemically fragile world. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the themes we explored, please visit the show notes page at natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series, please do share it with your friends and give it a rating or review. And for more insights and insider tips, you can join my newsletter as well. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.